Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back, everyone, to the PA the FI Way podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And for today's show, we have a very special guest. We have my friend Kristen on the show. Thanks for joining us. And I'm really excited to have our conversation where we're going to talk about transitioning from W-2 roles over to a 1099 role. So Kristen, would you mind introducing yourself and tell the listeners a few things about yourself as a PA and your experience so far? Absolutely. Thanks, Kat, for having me here today. I'm excited to contribute to the conversation the best that I can. Like Kat said, I'm also a PA, a friend, um, and a colleague of Kat's. We have uh, known each other since PA school. And through our friendship, I feel like we've kind of blossomed over the years, especially with our long-term goals of, of being financially independent. So yeah, I appreciate you having me here today to kind of tell you about our journey that we've had together going into the 1099 position and and being independent contractors now. I am also a psychiatry physician assistant. I started in family med, um, went to urgent care for a short period of time. And then in regards to my financial journey, I do a lot of investing and I've also recently got into real estate and rental property. So hopefully a later date, I can kind of come together and and share some of that journey with you. It's exciting and challenging at the same time. So again, thanks for having me. Yeah, I really enjoy our friendship and our discussions that we have as well about, you know, life and financial independence and things like that. I remember a couple or a few years ago when we figured out that both ourselves as well as a few other friends from PA school and other colleagues were pursuing financial independence. And it was really fun to find out that we were all in the same boat and journey together and that we could have more of these open financial conversations with with each other, because I think that's really important to bounce ideas off of each other, but then also just have that support in general on your way. Absolutely. The whole vision behind it is just how can we make each other succeed in this life, right? It's not always a competition like in PA school, right? Getting in was was challenging, but now we're on the other side of it and we're all just trying to achieve our goals. So I think it's great. Yeah, definitely. And then as you touched on, we both work in the same specialty as psychiatry PAs and we both recently did this journey and transition of going from having W-2 roles for all of our careers so far over eight years of practicing medicine, and then transitioning over to this 1099 role. And I'll be pretty honest, when I was considering that, I was pretty nervous about it and, you know, thought, is this a good change? Is this not a good change? But I had Caroline back on 
couple of episodes talking about locum tenens positions. And she's like, oh, I love 1099 rolls. And that conversation in general just really encouraged me to research that and think about what the differences are. And is this really something that seems so scary and overwhelming? What were your thoughts when you were considering potentially change into a 1099 role? Yeah, so I'm a mom with two young kids. And I think just having more flexibility of my life and my schedule was something that was really exciting. I was having the regular challenge of making sure that I left every day at a certain time to you know, not miss the bus or um, be too late for daycare. So I was super excited to explore that option of flexibility. And also, I agree that a lot of people are like, hey, you know, give this option a, a chance. You know, you can make a lot of money, you can succeed. It can be just really exciting to kind of explore that. So I think those are the biggest things on my mind is, again, the growth that could potentially be there from a professional level, a personal level, um, again, having just more freedom to be with my kids and then hopefully hit by and that, you know, that goal of being work optional as soon as possible. Yeah, I did an episode back a couple of episodes ago on the show episode 99. And that episode discussed the pros and cons of W2 versus 1099 roles. So if you haven't had a chance to take a listen to that one, make sure you understand the nuts and bolts differences between the types of roles. But yes, one of the huge draws to 1099 roles for me was the autonomy and the flexibility. So being able to have the choice of picking my own days and schedule, my appointment lengths, all of those things were really exciting and appealing to me. And it certainly does depend upon the role that you have. For example, Caroline and her locum tenens positions, they may find these positions for her that, hey, they need you there at the hospital or at the clinic from Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. or something like that, where you don't really have a whole lot of say because you're helping to cover for need. But for a lot of true independent contract work out there, there's a ton of flexibility to be had. So I think that that's definitely one of the great benefits of considering a 1099 role. And then a lot of people will ask us, how in the world do you find a clinic to contract with or how do you find 1099 positions? So when you were doing your consideration and life contemplation of your career and things like that, how were you coming across 1099 roles or how eventually, you know, did this one kind of come into your life, so to speak? Yeah. So with this position specifically, um, it was actually through an old colleague of ours that had interviewed at this this company and said, wow, like this seems like a great opportunity. Um, I'd really like to explore it, but I just don't have the time and the financial means to move forward with it. So she passed that information on to myself and Katerina, and we kind of said, oh, I think we do have the time. Um, I think we do have the opportunity to kind of explore it. So this one was just through networking and other colleagues. But I have done some research just, you know, using Google Indeed, trying to, you know, see if there's any other positions that could be available to also grab onto, because that's what's so great about being in the consulting or the contracting world is you could dabble into multiple areas if you felt that was right. Yeah, I definitely agree that the common job boards like Indeed or Glassdoor or 
Google jobs or things like that, you can find roles. I've also found that I think LinkedIn could be a really good tool for a lot of people to research too. And some people that work as PAs told me that they found their first job by reaching out to managers for clinics through LinkedIn or things like that as well. So there's definitely a lot of different ways that you could find these roles. I have also interviewed for roles where they offer you the choice of either being a W-2 employee or being a 1099 independent contractor for them. So sometimes you might have the option of either one of those in a role, which is kind of interesting if they present that as an option to you and you have to decide which one seems right. But yes, I think that networking is huge. Even conferences, CME conferences, you could network there. Med reps might have an idea of a place that might have openings for you as well. So there's lots of different places that you could find 1099 roles if that's something you're interested in. For sure. And then I was going to say, what if um, what if you wanted to just branch out by yourself too, right? Like start your own business. Um, that's always a possibility. Obviously, you know, we don't have that exact experience, but we know some people that have, and there's obviously positives and challenges that are associated with that as well. So if you feel like you can, you know, muster up the courage um, and do that, then my goodness, good for you. I think that's awesome. Yes, definitely. We have a former colleague that ended up starting her own practice and then also as her practice has been building, she is working as a 1089 independent contractor for another practice. So you can definitely have more than one position, which I think is a huge draw as well. And one of the beauties of our profession that you can tell from our backgrounds is that you can try more than one specialty throughout your career, but you can also be in more than one specialty at the same time if you would like to, either as a W-2 or a 1089 where maybe you are still keeping a urgent care position on the side that's as needed per diem type of position. And then you're also having a other type of role in a different specialty too. So again, the flexibility is a huge draw. For sure. And then again, we're not going to go into all the details of the differences between the W-2 and 1089 in this episode, but it is interesting to point out from our story how a contract for a 1099 is very different from a W-2 because you don't have benefits. And also, though, again, you get more autonomy and flexibility. So it was very interesting to try to negotiate some of those things. And then we're also paid on a percentage of collection for our compensation, which means that whatever money the practice brings in from our patients, whether through insurance or the patient's copay or the amount that they have to pay, we take home a certain percentage of that. So those types of things were definitely very interesting and new to me when I was reviewing the contract. What were your thoughts with all of those different things that we encountered when we were transitioning? I remember just having some conversations or looking at each other being like, wait, like we can decide this, you know, like, wait, we actually have the power. So I think that was really cool, but a huge adjustment, you know, to, to truly feel like your voice is being heard and that you have a say in, in where this position goes. So I think that was the most exciting thing throughout this process is, yeah, just getting to kind of make up the rules, right? And go with what feels right for you. Yeah, definitely. It was it was really cool to hear that when you have a 1099 role, you are viewed as this 
person that the clinic or the company is wanting to have work for them. And so you have a little bit of more leverage with that, a little bit more of an upper hand. And what I appreciated when the clinic owner, who is a therapist, along with her spouse, who's a therapist, she reviewed with us that there's something called the IRS 20 factor test. And what that test shows is that it helps differentiate between if a worker's relationship with the clinic or the hospital is truly viewed as a 1099 in the eyes of the IRS. And so it is really important that you learn about the 20 factor tests and feel like that you are truly functioning as a 1099. Otherwise, there could be some tax consequences in the future if that's the case. So I really respected and appreciated that she was trying to, you know, play by the book, so to speak, when we were talking with her about that. Absolutely. Since we were new to, you know, all of it as well, it definitely felt like a partnership with the owner and the clinic, you know, they were trying to make this partnership just, just very open, honest communication. And, you know, everyone was out to benefit each other. So it's like, let's play by the rules. Let's play by the book, make sure that you know, everyone's expectations are um, the same and we can both mutually benefit from from this relationship. So I thought that was really cool too. Yeah, definitely. It was very collaborative and felt more like you're an equal versus a number, right? Mm -hmm. In some positions that we've had, unfortunately, we're very replaceable in the eyes of the company and that's not a good feeling to have. And then one question that I see a lot in the psychiatry Facebook group that we're a part of as PAs is what's a fair percentage of collections. Now, it's important to keep in mind that not every 1099 role that you will be compensated as a percentage of collections. Sometimes it is an hourly compensation or things like that. But I found that a lot of psychiatry PAs in particular are compensated that way. But I've also seen dermatology PAs and other specialties as well. So, you know, this question's kind of a loaded question. What do you feel like is a, a fair, you know, compensation when you're discussing percentage of collections? And how in the world do you even know what some of the reimbursement might be or things like that? So um, throughout this journey, we myself and you, I feel like have done a, tried to do just a ton of research. And that's either through using social media or um, just, you know, through the internet or again, networking and kind of getting advice from other people that are in this position. So through that, we've kind of seen, hey, the minimum that you should get from a collection standpoint is at least 60%. Um, And there was an, an opportunity that I was presented for a 1099 position in Florida. And that is what I was offered, you know, without any negotiation or asking was 60%. Sure. Personally, I feel like that is on the lower side. But you know, you have to, you have to do what feels right for you as well. So obviously, the sky truly is the limit to some extent. So I think having that conversation with, you know, your employer or the clinic owner and just saying, I, I want this opportunity. I want this job. Um, but I feel like this percentage is, is more, you know, it's fair. Um, and I think you have some idea too of, you know, you can equate that into a dollar amount sure. um, and kind of compare that. So if you want to kind of reference that, that would be great. Yeah. So I think that, like you said, it depends upon the role and the company and things like that and what feels right for you. So 
We are talking about negotiating for telemedicine roles. So in general, there's less overhead. So keep that in mind. If you are working in person, depending upon your role, you might have more support staff that you need. So maybe you do need a nurse or an MA. And part of those collections that you bring in as a provider can go to help support and pay for their salary and pay, right? Because if you weren't working there, then maybe they didn't technically need that MA. So I do get that there's a little bit of give and take with that. Our role, we don't technically have any medical support staff. We do have admin support and some billing support, which we really appreciate. So part of our collections helps a little bit with their roles. Again, they would need them whether we were there or not for other providers like the therapists at the clinic or things like that, but also other overhead in general. So, you know, if you're going into a clinic or a hospital, there's perhaps more electricity use or technology, might need a computer there, might need to rent more office space or things like that. So keep in mind, again, what the costs to the company are if you are working there. I would say that I've seen probably 60 to 75% is pretty average and typical for a lot of positions. So I would want to get at least that. Again, we were fortunate that we were able to negotiate and have a really good amount that we feel really happy with right now and things like that. I do know of someone as well who's a PA in psychiatry that gets in the low to mid 50s, actually. And she actually does really, really well still. And she has shorter appointment time. So she sees a lot more patients and things like that. But she makes well over the 30 to 40% higher than an hourly W-2 amount that is suggested that you try to aim for in a 1089 role. So for a W-2 position, you know, if you're hourly rate is in like the 70s, 80s, maybe 90s, you want to make at least 30 to 40% to help compensate for the fact that you don't have benefits provided, the fact that you're setting up your own benefits, and the fact that they're not taking out taxes from the amount of money they're giving you. So you have to make sure you set enough money aside for the taxes that you pay on later when tax season rolls around. But at the same time, you are a business. So in this role, you're functioning as both the employee and the employer of your personal business, which is kind of cool. So you do get a lot of tax deductions and business write-offs and things like that too. So there's a lot of nuances. And again, disclaimer here, in case you can't tell, Kristen and I are new to this. This has been only in the past few months and tax season is rolling around coming up here soon. So we'll certainly see how things play out with that and working with tax professionals and things like that. But There's a lot of analyzing that is needed to be done, but sometimes you don't know all the answers and you just need to kind of jump in and see and try and see if you feel like it's a good fit for your life. Absolutely. I feel like we both had that conversation multiple times of just kind of a leap of faith. You know, we really are going into it somewhat blindly, um, but we, we just feel like it has a lot of potential and we're both at that point in our lives where it would be silly for us to just not move forward. You know, we know we have a good career behind us. And if it wasn't what we wanted um, at the end of the day or after a year or two, we could always transition to something different, which again, makes the career of being a PA so wonderful. Yeah, definitely. And then I have seen people ask in the Facebook groups or things like that, where 
they're wondering, well, excuse me, I even asked this question before we jumped in too. So it's a very valid question. How in the world do you have any idea what reimbursement is for these types of positions? So how would you suggest people attempt to research this? So I remember hitting Google up pretty hard on this, you know, going on the Medicare website and looking to figure out what their reimbursement rates were for certain codes. So I think just kind of asking around a little bit using Google, we were fortunate enough to ask the owner of the clinic that we were moving to to kind of go back in our records and and look at past codes and say, can you give us some ranges? Give us a, a sense of what we're getting ourselves into. So I don't know if there's an exact guidebook out there for you, but I would definitely just try to ask around. Again, you know, Katerina and I, I'm sure, would be happy to try to provide you some of that evidence, you know, some of that research too of this is what we've been seeing. But it just becomes so difficult with all the insurance plans out there and, you know, you code differently for every patient. So there's, Again, I think that kind of where it goes back to that leap of faith. Um, you might know what some basic numbers are, again, from looking at the Medicare website, but you really don't know until you jump in. Yeah, I think that's really true. And you don't know what types of codes you're going to be using because you don't know what type of cases you'll be seeing or how much time you'll be spending with patients or things like that, too. And we have seen where insurance companies seem to reimburse this quite variable range, which is very interesting. So some insurance companies are known to reimburse higher, which is always, you know, nice where you're like, oh, wow, that was a decent amount. And then surprisingly, some will not only bill lower, but I've also experienced where unfortunately, they won't even cover certain codes that are used. And one of the codes that we will sometimes use is an extended time spent with a patient type of code. And You know, if you're spending a really long time either with a patient or documenting, you can bill now based on time for your documentation, which is interesting too. But then some insurance companies don't reimburse for that. So it's like, wow, I spent all of that time and they hardly are reimbursing. So you just have to remind yourself, okay, well, these other insurance companies are helping to offset some of that because they are reimbursing a little bit more. Absolutely. And I think the one thing too is, we know we're not alone in it, right? Like we're new on this journey of, of 1099, but it's been around for a long time and there's a ton of PAs that, you know, do it. So again, we just said, let's jump, right? There's got to be water somewhere <laughs> underneath us. Um, so a lot of other PAs are succeeding. So let's see if we can join that as well. Yeah, I think what really helped me with that was seeing comments in the Facebook group about how people are like, oh, yeah, I used to be W-2 and now I'm 1099 and I will never go back to W-2. There were multiple people that said that and it was like, oh, okay, if you keep hearing that, then it's worth something at least giving your attention to and spending the time to do a little bit of research and trying it throughout your career. Absolutely. And then a huge question mark with all of this too is finding a supervising physician in 1099 roles. So We can share our experience, but there are some other ways of finding some supervising physicians that are willing to work with you in 1089. What would you suggest people to look for or to talk about when trying to find one? I would say just network, network, network. Yeah, we got really lucky um, with our situation and we can, you know, share that with you. But, you know, when we 
before that opportunity presented itself, we were just trying to reach out to our colleagues and saying, like, you know, who do you know? Who do you like? Right? Can we can we potentially meet with them? Um, again, going back to those those Indeed's, Glassdoor, Google, putting out ads is always a possibility. But I would agree it's challenging. Um, but the opportunity is there. You just keep searching for it. I think you'll find it. Um, but I guess I feel like we got the the, the easy part of it um, in our opportunity or in our situation. But I would imagine it is difficult for a lot of people. But I don't feel like that should be the thing that holds you back. It may delay your process, but don't let it hold you back. For sure. Yeah. And what Kristen is referring to about how we had it a little easy for us was that the owner who's a therapist knew a psychiatry nurse practitioner that worked with a psychiatrist who was potentially interested in contracting and being a supervising physician for PAs. So he actually hadn't been a supervising physician before as well. And that can be a bit of a concern or a bit of a red flag when you are looking for a supervising physician because you always wonder what his practice style is and how, you know, perhaps a little bit of the word controlling could be with how they want to micromanage you as a PA or things like that too. And again, we're both fairly experienced PAs where we feel confident practicing medicine, but in our state right now for psychiatry PAs, we still need a supervising physician. And it's always nice to have someone to reach out to when you're having these really complex, complicated patients that have a lot going on. So we really appreciated being able to be introduced to him, meet with him, and learn that he practices very similarly to us where we're very conservative with our approach to controlled substances and things like that. And he has a addiction medicine background in addition to his psychiatry practice. And so he you know, was very supportive with how we practice medicine too. So yes, it very quickly and easily worked out for us, but that is not always the case. The former colleague that we know that started her own practice, she was able to basically create a posting, it sounds like, and find someone that way to be her supervising physician. She said that she interviewed a few different ones who were interested and picked the one that seemed most reasonable and the price wasn't outrageous and things like that as well. And then there are some companies that will help supervising physicians meet and connect with PAs that are interested in finding one as well. And I am not familiar with those types of companies, so I can't recommend any. But if you do a Google search, I'm sure you can find one that way as well. But I think it goes back to networking and trying to find local people if you can. But if you can't, then there are other ways to to find them too. I think too, another thing to consider is that a lot of organizations or clinics will already have a supervising physician working there. So it's very possible that you may not have to find an external one. And there could be a internal one that you could work with as well. And then a question that can come up too is how do you decide how to compensate him or her for your time as the supervising physician? That was something we, you know, didn't really have a whole lot of guidance on either. And so we had to have discussions with him and things like that. But do you have any suggestions for people that are trying to find their supervising physician and coming to agreement for that? 
Yeah, being, you know, new to the whole process, we kind of just put the for the question forward to the psychiatrist that we were meeting with of just what is your preference? You know, we want this relationship. Um, we want to be able to utilize you for your wealth of knowledge, um, if need be, right? How do you want to be compensated for that? And in his personal career, he has done other consulting on the side. So he had a consultation fee um, and presented it to us and it seemed very reasonable. So we agreed to it. So we are on a actual fee for service type of thing where when we meet with him um, and have conversations, uh, review cases, we then pay him for the hour that, you know, we utilize him and, and, and grab his, his information or that, I'm sorry, grab that knowledge from him. So I feel like we felt very comfortable with that. Um, it seemed logical um, and wasn't this huge upfront cost that we were going to have to, you know, fork over because I know that there are some contracts that are more on a monthly basis. You know, there's a, just a flat fee or maybe there's a percentage that they collect. Yeah. Um, so I think, again, the sky's the limit with that. And I would just ask, you know, the psychiatrist or the supervising physician or collaborating physician, whatever terminology you want to use, what their preference is and make sure you're comfortable with it. And if not, obviously keep, you know, keep looking because that is a, a big part of it is making sure that you can stay afloat during this process too. Exactly. I think that it's very fortunate that he was willing to have that flat fee service rate, whereas, like you said, some people will charge a certain fee every single month or a certain part of your collections that have to be then transferred over to them for their service as well. So we're trying to keep our costs low at the beginning because we're building up because being paid on a percentage of collections, you don't have guaranteed income, unlike a W-2 position that's paid via salary or hourly rate. So it just felt very fitting and good and logical, like you said, for us at that moment of time. For sure. And then also with this transition, because you're functioning as both the employee and the employer for your own personal business, I personally think it's a really good time to start working with a tax professional for some guidance with this whole transition process. I think some PAs might know more on taxes than others and still feel very comfortable with doing their own taxes, but I would say that they're very likely the minority. Would you agree that it's really important that with this transition that you start finding a good tax professional? Absolutely. So I'm, um, we've always been hands-on. We've always kind of done our own taxes and I had to take a step back and just say like, this is out of my comfort zone. Maybe in the future, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to find a great tax professional. Um, you know, we haven't obviously met with ours yet this year, so I can't, you know, give a, my own review yet. But the goal is, is that we can find someone who's a good educator. Um, you know, being a PA, I feel like we're all about education and knowledge and, you know, wanting to learn. So I feel like that goes over into the tax world for me as well. Um, so hopefully... I can meet with someone, um, educate me, and, you know, I can learn from that and maybe go back and be hands-on in the future, but I would never want to start off right now. Completely new area for me. You know, you can have your taxes go through um, on the individual level, or you can have a, a corporation, an S-corp, so 
again, all of that's just so new and foreign to me that I don't feel comfortable. And I think finding that person um, to help you succeed in the beginning is super important and worth the cost, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I really appreciated that we had a tax professional up front because I was able to ask him some of the questions too about like what type of business entity I should set up with this role. You research online and a lot of PAs and other medical providers will set up LLCs, but there's other ones that you could consider as well. So just being able to bounce those ideas off of him. And then also he helped with guidance about like, what is the next step? And I just really appreciated that little bit of extra handholding during that process. Yeah, absolutely. So I did have you to bounce my questions off. But, you know, the Secretary of State websites for your state, I feel like does a great job of outlining a lot of that. Um, at least Minnesota does. So it kind of breaks down what what different options you have for a business and walks you through the process of how to register that and what you need. So again, if you don't have someone, don't feel like that's a roadblock. There's that information out there for you. Yeah, definitely. So I tried to formulate this episode in a step-by-step process as much as I could. A lot of these things we were working on overlapping or simultaneously with other things too. So, you know, once you feel like you can proceed with a contract you feel comfortable with at a place you feel comfortable with, you have a supervising physician lined up, you may or may not have a tax professional at this point. Now it's time to set up your business entity. And you touched on this a little bit already, but do you mind sharing just the basic general outline of doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I utilize the Secretary of State, um, even the IRS websites quite a bit to, to kind of help guide me. But you have to figure out a name. What do you want to call yourself? Yeah. Um, so that's an exciting. That was kind of yeah, funny. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exciting stage, but also kind of nerve wracking. Like, oh, goodness, this is, this is gonna be legal. So figure out what you want to call yourself. And go online, find your Secretary of State website, and type that in. Make sure nobody else has that name. Yep. If that name isn't there, um, then you can you can register it. And essentially, you we went the LLC route. So really easy. I think it took us like, what, five, 10 minutes truly to kind of go through, create the name, put your address in, you know, identify what business um, entity you want to use. And boom, there you are. You have, you know, your own business. So um, it's nerve wracking. And there is a little fee with it. Um, it was under $200 in Minnesota. So it wasn't this um, huge cost, but actually really, really easy to do. So um, again, take the step and do it for sure. Um, yeah. And if you have any questions, obviously, find someone who can help you with that. I know that Minnesota had a small business office um, line that I called a few times just to verify before I hit the enter button sure. that I was that I was doing it right. Um, So there is those resources out there for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I want to touch a little bit more about picking a name. I thought that you had some really good insight when we were figuring this out because I was definitely like, oh, okay, well, this is fun. I get to pick a name and I wanted to do something kind of unique or creative with the field of mental health with this role and something that kind of demonstrated my values or my personality or things like that with the name that I chose and just kind of have this more generalized business name. But your suggestion, which I thought was really good, was to use our names and then medical consulting. And I really liked that 
phrasing that terminology. You could do, you know, medical services or something like that. But I really liked the suggestion of just keeping it very broad and open in case we were to also be working another type of role that's more generalized medicine. So thanks so much for that suggestion. I really liked it. Of course. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. I was probably just not as creative as you either. (laughs) I was was too nervous to come up with a different name. So I'm glad that that you swung my direction and liked kind of the broad, simple aspects of it. Yeah, I loved it for sure. And then we also had to obtain our EINs after we had our LLC set up. There's lots of acronyms such as in medicine and life with when you're opening your own business. But do you mind sharing a little bit about getting your EIN set up? Yeah, so doing the EIN and even the Minnesota tax ID, those were pretty simple as well. They're all on, well, the EIN would have been on the IRS website. Yep. That's, that's a federal one. Um, so two different you know, websites that you'll have to go to. But again, happens within a few minutes. So just putting in your information, your business information, um, some of your demographic stuff, um, hitting, hitting enter and you get it within a few seconds after you do that. So those processes and those things are essential just so you can open, you know, bank accounts and credit cards and obviously for your tax returns. So super easy to do and definitely essential. Yeah, definitely. It is a lot of things to open, but they're not that hard and you can often find support. So in case you're wondering, EIN stands for Employer Identification Number, and it's your federal tax identification number. And it is important that you get that opened and get that set up because you also need to set up your state tax ID. And I personally found the state tax ID questions to be a lot more confusing than the EIN one. I don't know if that was your experience as well, but when I was doing that process, I appreciated being able to contact my tax professional to get his guidance about what in the world button to click because I thought some of the questions were kind of confusing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Minnesota, you know, there was questions about, well, the one that I think that we qualified for in Minnesota was the provider's care tax. Um, So it it was a little bit more challenging to kind of figure out and, and research each one of those tax sections and figure out, is that something that, you know, I have to pay taxes in? So I agree, the Minnesota one or the state one was definitely a little bit more challenging. But I, again, kind of lean to you a little bit too with that, hey, you have this tax professional, what are what are their thoughts? What are their recommendations? And then doing my own research, I, I felt pretty confident moving forward with it. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that although we are in very, very similar boats here, everyone's individual tax scenario and situation is different from each other. So depends upon your spouse, if you have kids, all those things. So it is nice to be able to kind of have someone look at your individual situation as well. But again, the advice can be pretty generalized to a lot of different people in the same boats as well. And then the EIN is important to have when you open a business banking account after you've also set up your LLC. So you need to have those set up. And then a business banking account is advised. So do you mind sharing a little bit about those details? So with the business banking account, I wanted to keep my life super simple. So I actually went with the same um, the same bank that I do my personal banking with, just created a, a business account. I had done some research in some other you know, banking 
opportunities that were out there. And um, this one just, again, seemed the simplest to me with how complex and how challenging this process can be. Um, I wanted to keep it simple. So I I didn't do a lot of research on on the, the banking account aspect. I did dive into a, a little bit more with the credit cards, but not so much on the banking side. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the route that we took as well, where I decided I don't mind my current bank. It's easy to open a business bank account. It's important that you do check the fees on some of those accounts because sometimes business banking accounts can charge a lot of fees. And if that's the case, avoid it, obviously. But I liked the simplicity of, hey, it's already in the same bank. And if I just want to transfer my money from my personal business account over to our joint checking account that I share with my husband, it's a very easy process and transition there. Although electronic banking can make that fairly easy with different banking institutions as well. But I think the main thing there is to check on the ease of use, the flexibility, but also definitely make sure you're not paying an exorbitant amount of business fees when you have a banking account. Yeah, I did notice that with the real estate aspect, um, we kind of looked around a little bit. Um, and there was some banks that had minimum fees, you know, $1,000, $2,000. And again, not necessarily a fee, right? But this minimum, well, when you're starting a business, you don't sure. really have $1,000, $2,000 to just put in the bank to sit there. So um, I think that's a great point, Kat, is, you know, find something that isn't going to take that money away from you either right now, right? You're going to have some expenses anytime you start in a business and having that cash on hand is important. Yeah. And then once you have a business banking account set up and you're getting started with this whole process, you have some different things or supplies or fees that you need to pay it's good to get a business credit card. So you said that you looked into that a little bit. Do you mind sharing your experience with that? Yeah. So we actually, I ended up going out with Chase. Um, I felt like they were a really good credit card company. Um, and I just really liked the ease, what they offered, the percent back you you could get. So I think start there is um, make sure that you're opening a credit card that has some sort of you know bonus or some sort of reward with it. Um, I know, Kat, you're huge into travel. So, you know, it makes total sense for you to look into that travel and the travel hacking and all that. Um, me personally, I just like to see kind of money come back at me. So I went with one of them that had a higher percentage of, of cash back. Sure. So I think the sky's the limit with that as well. Just figure out, you know, where you're going to get the best bang for your buck and what makes sense for your life. Exactly. And the options can be overwhelming, but try to do some research and chase cards can be great. The one downside about some of the chase travel rewards cards, which are my favorite ones that I currently use, is that the minimum spend amount in order to be able to get all of the points is higher generally for business credit cards than personal credit cards. And some of these were several thousand dollars. And I'm like, I don't have several thousand dollars with starting this business. So I have not set up a travel business credit card yet for this business, but it's definitely something I'm considering down the road. But having a business credit card is suggested because it helps a little bit further with keeping your personal expenses from your business expenses when you're tracking for tax purposes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, once you get that first paycheck and you get some money coming in the door, 
um, it would be important to kind of utilize that credit card and take that money out of your business account and just kind of not cross over um, as much as possible, right? Keeping personal, personal and business, business. Yeah. My vision for the future as a side note is that I would love to update my laptop in the future because it is kind of struggling along, have had it since 2015. And sometimes the updates are really slow and I'm just skimping it along a little bit. So a laptop is in the back of my mind as well as a sit stand desk, I think would be a really fun purchase too, because of, you know, working telemedicine in our office. I think that would be fun. I also have my eye on one of those small treadmill type of devices that can go under the standing desk as well. So I feel like all those purchases are fair amount of money. And again, I don't need or want any of those right now in my life. But in the future, I think that'll It'll help with this role and perhaps when I'm ready to purchase those larger expenses, then maybe I'll have a travel business credit card to be able to meet the minimum spend at that point. Absolutely. You'll be feeling good and in shape for your, you know, Caribbean adventure. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) And then another big step with all of this that we had to work on was credentialing. And credentialing is this process that can unfortunately take a long time. Tell us a little bit about the process with credentialing with this type of position. Yeah. So I guess my advice would be um, to, to try to hire out for that service. If you can find someone that specializes in it, I probably would. Kat and I did not you know, we were not hands-on with that process. So we really can't tell you, you know, what was actually done and what all the paperwork, you know, that needs to be done and filled out. But our understanding essentially is if you're already credentialed, um, it is a fairly easy process where you just get added on the different health plans um, with the clinic that you're currently at. So again, just kind of adding your name under this clinic and then informing the health plan. This is, you know, this is where Kristen's working. This is where Kat's working now. So the the basics of it seems pretty simple, but it wasn't something that we really wanted to tackle. So yeah, we were able to get a referral through the clinic, um, someone that they use, and we were able to contact her and she kind of took it from there. But I agree, the process is slow. And again, maybe it could be faster in, in other, you know, other businesses. Hard to say. We don't have anybody else to compare it to. But it was a little slow at times, but glad that, you know, we were at where we at now and we're able to see people and overall just had to pay, again, a, a small fee for that, um, which didn't seem outrageous and worth our time, I guess. Yeah, I agree. It was just one more thing that was on our plate that we were able to take off our plate for a pretty low fee that it was like, okay, yes, this lady is a professional. She's done this for lots of providers let's outsource this while we're working on all these other things that we need to get set up during this process. And if a 1099 role is your first job as a PA, then that process, there's lots of paperwork and things like that. But that process usually takes around three months to get credentialed. And so Kristen and I were optimistic that like you had touched on with it, it should just be a simple updating the location, the practice address at least that's what it seems like to us. 
but there may have been more things behind the scenes or things like that. But it was amazing how slow some of these insurance companies would take. It was like pulling teeth sometimes. Some of them, I I believe I was credentialed within a month, but others it was you know, two, if not three months still. And it's like, really, this is just a location change. I'm not getting credentialed with you from scratch. So that was a frustrating process because the patients that had those insurance companies weren't choosing to schedule with me, which I totally respect that decision. They could have and paid cash, you know, have done a self-pay type of situation. But I personally probably wouldn't have gone that route. I would have just waited if I could for the medical service until my insurance was set up. So it was kind of a limiting rate step, I felt like, but it's obviously a necessary step. Yeah, for sure. The one thing that I would add is um, the credentialing specialist that we use basically gave us the okay to kind of start seeing some people too, even if we weren't maybe fully approved because she was informed by these insurance plans that they would retroact, sure. um, you know, to the date that we said we would be starting, okay. right? So for example... My start date, let's say 12-1, well, I was seeing someone on 12-12, wasn't technically maybe approved yet, but she's like, no, you know, they have all your information. They gave me the go, okay, you know, or the, the go ahead. They just haven't made things maybe official. So ask that question too, um, sure. to see if that doesn't limit you um, or, or slow your start date down. Yeah, that makes sense. And then another step that we did with this whole process was that we had to notify the DEA about our job change and our practice location change. And then depending upon your state and the different regulations that PAs have to follow, sometimes you have to notify your state board too. So it's important to try to keep in mind all of these different places and organizations and federal entities that you have to notify when you're changing these positions as well. Yeah. And just an FYI, I felt like the DEA one, which is, again, right from a federal standpoint, was super easy just to go in there and um, notify them of your business location change. So um, don't be afraid about that. But they were good to us with that. Yeah, definitely. And that's a step that is done even if you're changing from W-2 to a W-2 position. And it's one that it's very easy to forget. I feel like you're getting everything set up and then I feel like there's no reminder with that process of, oh, yeah, you have to notify the federal government that you're going to be prescribing controlled substances with a different organization. Now it's like, oh, that can be very easy to forget. For sure. And another thing we had to get set up was malpractice. So with a lot of 1099 roles, you do need to find and purchase your own malpractice insurance. Again, if the clinic or organization provides it for you, it might look like that you're an employee to the IRS. So that's something that I would encourage both you and the organization to research and do what you feel like is comfortable because, of course, it'd be nice if they provided the malpractice for you because it's one less expense off of your plate. But share a little bit about the research with malpractice and getting that all set up. Yeah, so I think we just have to do a shout out to our, um, you know, Facebook friends and our psychiatric groups and things like that, because that question was asked a ton. So there was a lot of um, research that was done that we could, you know, go through those old posts and, and find names and yep. um, find people that have had a, a suit against them and said, hey, this this company was great, you sure. know, uh, I was super nervous and they supported me throughout the process. So we utilized that, to be honest 
kind of wrote down three or four companies that had really good personal reviews, took that to Google. It seems like Google had pretty good reviews and then we got quotes. Yep. Um, so really at the end of the day, it kind of did come down to the money yes. after, you know, we found that these were good companies to work for or work with, excuse me. So again, when you're starting off a new business, you don't have a lot of money just kind of sitting around there. So we felt super comfortable with, can't even remember the name of who we went with, but um, we felt comfortable with the company that we went through and uh, had to go through the tedious paperwork of filling out where we're located and how many people we're going to see and which office setting and who's our psychiatrist and yep. um, kind of all that sort of stuff. And the approval process was pretty smooth too. Yes, exactly. I think a few main points are to read reviews or get personal recommendations either from other PAs or medical providers that you know, or again, Facebook groups can be a huge resource for that. We ended up using American Professional Agency. And what was interesting about that malpractice insurance company was that they do seem to be catered towards mental health professionals, not only medical providers, but therapists as well. And again, the psychiatry PA Facebook group that we're part of highly recommended them, which was really cool. They had a good rate that they offered us compared to others when we were getting the quote, but they also had different discounts for things that we qualified for, such as if we were new to them or things like that. So yes, it made our decision pretty easy once we compared rates and got quotes and found that they had more discounts for us. Yeah. And the good thing is, is again, it's just like any other insurance that you have, you know, home, auto, you can always shop around, right? So if you feel pretty content with where you're at um, and the rate that you're getting, you know, jump on, right? It's better to have the coverage than not. Um, And in the future, if it doesn't seem right, you can always switch over. Yep, exactly. Speaking of insurance, another big question that people get when you're talking about 1099 rules is, what in the world do you do about medical insurance? So that's a huge question mark that a lot of people have. Yeah. So Kat, this is going to come back at you. Um, I have been super fortunate that my husband for the last how many years has been our benefit holder? I mean, basically everything's been on him. So again, going back to that question way at the beginning of, you know, why did I feel okay taking this jump and this leap was kind of for that reason too. It wasn't going to affect me from um, a medical insurance, dental insurance, you know, HSAs, dependent care, all of that stuff um, wasn't going to be problematic for me. So again, back to you, um, what challenges um, do you have, have you had or kind of what advice can you give the listeners? Sure. So perhaps I'm a little bit more stupid than Kristen is in that I just jumped. No, <laughs> where, <laughs> where Honestly, because my husband does not have a position that has benefits either right now, keep in mind we don't have kids currently, it was a higher risk for our situation. So yes, that was definitely a decision that I did not take lightly. I was fortunate to, again, know this other PA that is a 1099 independent contractor, and her husband also does not have a position where he has benefits because In his case, he is self-employed. So with her, I was able to ask questions like, what in the world about medical insurance for you guys? Because she has three kids. And 
So I talked with her a little bit about it and she said, yep, it's pretty darn expensive. But again, it's one of the prices you pay for this type of role that seems better at this point in their life. So I had to research how in the world do you do this? And it came down to a couple of options. One option was that you could research through your state marketplace and try to find different types of medical insurance based on your situation. So you can create an account, plug in your situation, and they can provide different quotes. And that's how a lot of people find medical insurance. Another option too is that if you relatively like your current medical company that you have, you can actually call them and contact them and ask them what their rate would be to stick with their plan. And we have an HSA plan, which I love HSAs. If you're a listener of the show, you know that. So it was really important that I found an HSA plan, but that the rate wasn't astronomical. And the quote that they gave me was actually very competitive, if not a little bit cheaper than what I was seeing on the preliminary research on the marketplace. So that's what I did was I just transitioned from getting medical insurance with my former employer through this medical company and just having me take over the monthly payments. And sadly, it's a lot of money. It's you know several hundred dollars for my husband and me. And again, this other friend that I know who has her husband and the three kids, they pay a lot for their medical insurance. So unfortunately, medical insurance is a high cost. But again, I love HSAs, so be able to invest tax-free money for future healthcare expenses. And then also I talked with my tax professional, and you can get some tax benefits from providing your own medical insurance too. So that helped reassure me a little bit with the expense with all of that. So on the line of insurance, another important insurance that is highly suggested that you have is disability insurance. and particularly long-term insurance, but short-term insurance can be helpful for a lot of people's situations too, although short-term can be a little bit more expensive. So what was your experience with, if you have disability insurance, did you continue it or did you have to change things or what did you decide about long-term and short-term and all of that with your transition? I'm playing with fire. (laughs) At this point, I do not have any disability insurance. Um, We went and we do have life insurance. Um, we do have life, a good life insurance plan um, in place, but at this point, I have not looked into any of the disability insurance. You know, I had short-term disability for sure when I had my kids, um, and then I always elected the long-term disability plan that the company offered, Sure. but I have never taken one out myself. So I think it's a conversation that I need to have with my husband and, and figure out if, if that makes sense for us or not. You know, I always think that there's, again, pros and cons to all of these different insurances, right? Um, There's expenses to them, and you hope that you never have to utilize them. But in the event that something does happen, it's nice to know that you have that coverage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, insurance is one of those great debates in finances as well as in marriages, right? If you do have a partner to have discussions about which insurances to prioritize or not. I think that long-term is really good for a lot of people if you can get the own occupation long-term insurance because it follows you for your specific specialty, whether you can do it or not throughout medicine. But keep in mind that it depends on your situation. So some people have a spouse that has a really good income. And so if you were to become disabled and not work, 
then it wouldn't be such a burden to your family. The spouse might be able to carry the finances going forward for that. In our situation, I'm the primary bread earner, so to speak. So my husband and I probably would be okay on his salary, but we would have to do a lot of life changes, tons of downsizing, selling lots of things, stuff like that. So it would be a huge burden if I were to become disabled. So that's why I definitely have disability insurance. And then also the question about long-term versus short-term. So I have had short-term with previous employers And one employer actually covered it for me before in the past. And then another one, you had to pay a certain amount per month. But with this role, when I was trying to research short term, unfortunately, a lot of companies don't like to provide it for 1099 workers, which is interesting. Or if you can find it, it's actually really expensive. And keep in mind, short term disability usually covers you for a few months. So Technically, if you have an emergency fund, that can be your short-term disability. So I don't have a short-term disability policy right now. But for us, I thought it was important that we kept our long-term disability policy for now. Yeah, no, you have some great points there for sure. Gives me something to think about too. Yeah, definitely. I can recommend someone for you if you'd like. Perfect. Thank you. And then another benefit that you don't have in a 1099 role is an employer-sponsored retirement account. Because again, you're the employer in the situation. So if you do want a retirement account, you need to set that up. So that is a step that happens throughout this process. Have you had any chance to set one up already? Or where are you at with that process? Yeah. So yeah, we, um, I think to go back first and hit the point that, you know, not everything has to happen on day one or day two. So, you know, we're already in this, we've, we've got our businesses, we're seeing patients and we're still, you know, working some of these details out. Exactly. So just to kind of give you a, a moment to say, take a deep breath. You don't want to have to do this all right away. But yeah, I'm going through the retirement uh, headache, I guess, right now of just trying to kind of figure out what makes the most sense for us. Um, I have a little bit of a unique situation where I can't keep my funds in my my past employer's account um, because of my, my husband's line of work. So I am having to roll that over. And I think the big debate is traditional versus Roth, right? And and what makes sense and, and how we contribute and invest. So we're kind of going through the, the pros and cons of finding an account that offers one um, or both. Sure. And what makes the most sense? What has fees um, that are manageable, um, really good you know, options to invest in. So I think that's maybe the most exciting part in the retirement account world is just having potentially more things to invest in, right? You're pretty limited usually in the employer-sponsored account. So it is kind of exciting to have that flexibility. And then also the amount that you can contribute is usually a lot larger as well. And Kat is probably more of the expert on some of that. So she can maybe provide you with some more numbers or at least where to look for it. But yeah, we're in the beginning stages of it. So not a whole lot to report, but um Right now, I think just for the listeners, Fidelity is kind of my my top company that I'm looking at. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's exciting that you can open up your own retirement account. But again, it's one of those things on your plate where there's a gajillion different options and trying to figure out what you want in a retirement account, which one's the best one for your certain situation. Do you want the Roth option in addition to traditional option? All of those types of things. In general, 
I also have not set up a retirement account yet because unfortunately, it's taking a little bit of more time to earn a little bit higher of an income with building our patient panel. So I don't have a ton of extra funds right now to invest. So my investments are on a little bit of a pause, which I don't love in my life, but hopefully that'll come back. But the retirement account that I'm really leaning towards setting up is a solo 401k. And that's where you can set it up as a individual where you have an independent contractor role. And one of the beauties of a solo 401k is that you can invest both as the employee and the employer. So you can put a lot more money in there than you would be able to through an employer-sponsored retirement 401k, which is really nice. And as you mentioned, Kristen, I think that it is nice to be able to find one that offers a Roth option because unfortunately not all of them do. But keep in mind, Roth means that you don't get taxed again in the future when you are withdrawing your money as long as you follow the guidelines. Whereas traditional saves you on your taxes now, you will get taxed in the future. So the big question mark is, do you think you'll earn more in the future when you're retired, quote unquote, and withdrawing the money? Or will you be earning less? And a lot of people who are pursuing financial independence might actually be earning more. You mentioned real estate investing. You might be having this passive income where if you build up a real estate portfolio, you may eventually be earning a lot more down the road. Or if the businesses that I'm working with take off and we earn more money that way, then I might have this business that although I'm retired from traditional work, I have more income on the side here. So I think that it's nice to have a little bit of both for a lot of people. Or if you know, hey, once I'm retired, I won't have any income, then traditional might be your better bet because you'll be in a lower tax bracket. So yes, there's definitely lots of things to consider. And like you said, fees are a huge thing too. So make sure that you find one that has low fee options and one that has a good amount of a selection of index funds that you like to invest into. For sure. And then you hear a lot about just being user-friendly too. So one that has a really good website platform is important, right? So if you are, you know, doing investments or, or trading things that you have a, you know, again, a good platform to work off of. Yeah, exactly. And then with this role, we also had to research EMRs and e-prescribing. And This might not be the case for a lot of you transitioning from W-2 to 1099, but our situation was a little unique in that they did not have current med providers and they had a recent EMR switch and all of that. So the EMR that they selected was made primarily for therapists, not technically for med providers. So we had to have this discussion of, do we stick with this EMR? Do we try to find a different one? So could you share a little bit about what your thoughts were with that research process. Yeah. So I think the first thing is what you're, that you commented on is this is unique to us, right? So there may be um, a role that you step into where all of this is set out for you already and you don't really get a choice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we had the option to kind of figure out, are we going to stay with what they're offering or are we going to switch? And again, that was mostly because the EHR system they were using didn't have a prescribing associated with it. And clearly we needed that um, being in our field. So it had its challenges and its ups and downs. We ended up staying with what the clinic offered and then just adding on a e-prescribing software system. So we did a little bit more research on that um, and we were able to have the clinic cover that as well as an expense coming from them versus a a business expense, expense of ours. 
but it was just even navigating that, right? Like who pays for this? Yeah. So yeah, pros and cons to all EHR systems out there for sure. We all know that they're a major headache, but we were able to modify and kind of adapt what they had. And so far it's been working fine. Yeah. Um, and with anything, a little bit of time and trial and error, usually, you know, you can make it work in your life. Yeah, definitely. The one that we use is called Simple Practice. And again, it's geared more towards therapists, but there are a lot of medication providers that utilize it. And there's been discussion that hopefully they'll add on e-prescribing to this platform because of all the medical providers that use it. So we'll see if that happens down the road. And within Simple Practice, we were able to create psychiatric-specific template to use for our notes. And we utilized our previous psych notes from our former organizations that we had worked with and were able to customize and build what we liked in a note and take out what we didn't like. And although perhaps it didn't have all the functionality that we wanted, it was still very workable and doable. And it was like, okay, this just makes sense for us to stick with what they have versus having admin staff having to juggle between two EMRs, between the therapist or us or things like that. And then we researched e-prescribing tools. And again, Facebook groups helped us with that research. We looked into iPrescribe and MD Toolbox as the two main ones, although there were a few others we researched a bit. And we ended up going with MD Toolbox. I think it was a little bit cheaper. And I believe another reason that we went with it was because of the prior auth functionality, although knock on wood, neither of us have had to do a prior auth so far. So we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely clunkier not having the systems integrated. That's for sure. Totally. You know, you don't really think about how going into the MD toolbox, you have to put in again, patients, first name, last name, you know, birth date, sex, you know, um, address, phone number, all of that, yeah. enter their allergies, um, then enter in all the medications. So it is clunkier and it is more time consuming. But again, you kind of factor that into how long it's going to take for a patient. And um, like Kat mentioned earlier, we do have a little bit of a longer appointment time in place just because we feel like it's important to have that connection. Um, And that was one of the things that we wanted to change from our previous practice is just not feeling so rushed and just being able to give that time. So again, that flexibility of being 1099 has been really good to us. Yeah, I I definitely love being able to spend extra time with my patients and not just feel so rushed and like my cortisol levels are so high throughout the day. And because I feel like you practice probably very similarly to me where love to be thorough and detailed, but yet be efficient and stay on time because I feel like staying on time is important boundary for myself for not only respecting my time and my day, but also the patient scheduled after as much as possible. Now, certainly when you get someone with suicidal ideations or things like that, some visits just definitely take more time and you need to respect that. And the patient scheduled after that can wait if that's absolutely needed. But yes, I absolutely love being able to spend more time with with my patient. One other thing too about not having an e-prescribed tool that's integrated with your EMR is that you also have to make sure that you update your med list in the EMR, which is another extra step. So yes, it is tedious and extra steps to not have them integrated and Fingers crossed if anyone knows people over at Simple Practice that they can 
get the e-prescribing integrated soon because I think there's a lot of providers that are waiting for that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be an awesome function. And then another step we had to do was to create intake forms and other forms or questionnaires for new patients or follow-up patients with the clinic. So that was a huge thing that we've never had to do at previous W-2 positions as well. So what are your thoughts about all of that process? Yeah. So I, I guess maybe we made this clear to the listeners before or not, but this was a brand new service that we were providing at this clinic. Um, it was primarily therapy-based. They have some other wholeness and wellness per, you know, practitioners as well, but they never had psychiatry. So in addition to moving to 1099, um, again, we were kind of creating a service. Um, so what Kat's getting at is, you know, we had to modify and create some of these forms um, that reflected what we were going to be doing with the patient. So, you know, there is some overlap between what a therapist finds as important information to collect on a patient. But then obviously, you know, we have a different um, idea of what's important. So we took a lot of time unpaid, um, yeah. you know, to create these forms um, that were professional and allowed us to, you know, take it from the patient's mouth and kind of insert it into our chart note um, as smoothly and efficiently as possible too, right? So we're not duplicating a lot of work. So that was interesting kind of getting into some of the, the again, business administrative world too that, you know, a lot of us just aren't used to having to be that hands-on and making sure we have some of the legal terminology in there and being very clear with our words to, you know, not cause confusion. So it was, it's been exciting, I guess, and super challenging to take on this role um, and kind of create, again, this new service. Yeah, we were fortunate that the therapy group, the clinic in general, had a lot of forms that they had formulated with attorneys and things like that, that we were able to tweak a few words and change, you know, the wording therapist to psychiatry provider or psychiatry PA or whatever terminology we used, or if there were some paragraphs in there that just didn't pertain to us, we were able to edit and remove them. So we did not personally work with attorneys for that part. But if you're starting from scratch, I think that that's a huge area that you'll need to hire legal help to make sure that you have all the things in there that are important when you're caring for patients and to help cover yourself a little bit more. Yeah, at the end of the day, there could be some consolidation, but we have like 12 forms that we have our patients kind of go through and sign. And again, we felt like there was a purpose and a place for all of them. Um, but luckily, our software system allows them to go through them pretty quickly and get signatures and dates. But it was a lot yeah. um, there for a while to, you know, a lot of rereading things and making sure it applied to us. And yeah, I, I'm so thankful that the, the clinic that we're working with now allowed us to kind of take some of that and modify it to fit our needs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks for all your hard work that you did with that step. I know that you took the first step of rewording everything and then you're like, okay, hey, take a look at this. And then I would give my input and there's back and forth. So I appreciate all the time and effort that you put into that whole step. Of course, of course. Late night, no problem. <laughs> kind of felt like back in PA school, right? Like <laughs> trying to cram it all in, in between swim lessons and pickups and suppers, bedtimes. But um, again, it was a kind of a short-lived stress, sure. I guess you could call, but glad it's 
glad we got it done. And I really have loved doing this whole process with not only a colleague, but a friend, because it's like, okay, this whole process would have been overwhelming and my motivation would definitely have been lacking throughout several parts of this where when you have someone else to bounce ideas off and work together on these projects, it really, really helped throughout this whole process. For sure. I mean, we're still doing that now. So I agree. Like not every journey you can do with a a good friend, but if you have that, you know, that option, take it because we still are calling each other on a daily basis almost (laughs) just trying to bounce things off of each other so I ditto what you said like I agree it's been so great having you right there with me for sure and then one other piece of this whole puzzle is marketing so again I think our role might be a little unique in that they did not have psychiatry services before we signed up at that point so marketing was a little bit new for us as well as the clinic for psychiatry in that moment. But keep in mind, we're trying to build our patient panels. And so it's kind of like, although we can see patients located throughout our state utilizing telemedicine, we're one private practice clinic in this whole state. And so it's kind of like, okay, we're here, we have med services and, you know, try to figure out ways for the patients to find us. So do you want to share a little bit about the marketing journey that we've had so far? Yeah. So I feel like this is still something that we're really focusing on right now. Um, so hopefully this evolves and our strategies get even better. Um, but we, you know, tried just the real basic um, social media internet platform. So sending out little messages or memos within Facebook, within our specific groups of, hey, you know, if you're looking for anyone and, you know, you have a patient moving to Minnesota, you know, here I am. I'd I'd love to see an RPA group from school um, or in our local Twin Cities group, we've kind of set out little memos, send text messages to our friends, you know, that live in the area. So just kind of doing some of that. I made a change. You know, if you need help, please, please send them our way. Updating LinkedIn profiles, I think, is super important. Again, even changing maybe your job status on your personal Facebook page just, you know, sets out a post or a notification. So those things were really simple. We also got informed of a website called Psychology Today, um, which is, again, in, you know, in the mental health world. But there may be those other websites out there for other specialties. Um, But that was a good resource. And I think we've been getting a lot of referrals from that specifically to kind of bring patients in. And then putting a little pressure on the clinic itself and saying, hey, what can you do? What, you know, what networking do you have to promote us? So I know they've been sending out flyers and updating their Facebook pages and sending out newsletters. So again, we're kind of in the research of that a little bit and trying to figure out what else can we do besides what we're doing to just get our name out there. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely a interesting thing to think about. Again, we've never had to do this role in any of our previous roles that we've had as PAs throughout our careers. So yes, the clinic is also trying to get Google marketing set up so that patients can find us easier that way. So hopefully that'll be set up soon. And then Psychology Today has been a really good website. Again, it's geared more towards therapists, but there are a lot of psychiatry providers on there as well. And the beauty of our malpractice insurance company that we went with 
the American Professional Agency was that at the time that we signed up, they had a promotion where you got a six-month free trial of Psychology Today. Otherwise, I don't know the exact monthly rate, but I feel like it was around $30 per month for a Psychology Today I profile. I think you're right. Yep, around 30 Yeah. And so we were able to create this profile and test it out for six months and get our name out there and our face out there for people searching as well, which is really cool. And then we also recently created a flyer through Canva that is kind of about us and our practice style and things like that. And we're going to make a more concerted effort to think about not only our past professional connections that we've had, whether through our family medicine positions we've had several years ago, or even OBGYN clinics in the area that might want referrals for mental health for some of their patients or other small therapy groups or things like that, that we don't know and just try to send emails to them and connect with them and say, you know, hey, it's nice to meet you. This is who we are. And if you're having trouble getting patients in with a psychiatry provider, you know, we're happy to see them. And we would absolutely love to be on your list of potential referrals if you would consider that. So there's definitely lots of things we can do. And hopefully that we'll be able to get the ball rolling with some of those things soon. Good point. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for taking your time today to have this thorough and detailed discussion of all of the different steps and things that need to be done when you are transitioning from a W-2 role over to a 1089 role as a PA or other medical professional as well. Is there anything else that you would like to add or any way that you would like the listeners to connect with you or reach out for questions or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I guess just a little motivation coming your way of it's a lot, you know, we, we crammed a lot into this episode and, you know, we were detailed in, in some of our specific strategies, but hopefully this can just be a good outline for you to utilize um, if you're going to go through this process. Because I think that was one of the biggest things that Kat and I struggled with is just like, what are we missing? That constant feeling of like, what else do we need to do? So again, hopefully this just can be a good guide for you. I personally have no problem answering any questions. Again, I, you know, it's a new process for me um, and I'm specific to psychiatry, but I will do my best to help direct you if need be. So I think if listeners have any questions, just funneling those through Kat makes total sense and she can reach out to me if there's something specific that maybe I have a little bit more experience with. But again, we went through this journey together, so I know she can answer those just as well as I can. Yeah, that sounds great. The email for the listeners is pathefiway at gmail.com. I'd be happy to try to answer any questions myself or if you have any specific ones for Kristen, I'd be happy to pass those along to her as well. So definitely feel free to reach out with any questions you have or any feedback as well. But thanks so much, Kristen. It's been really fun chatting with you today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kat. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. 
Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.